G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. Short plug, otpodcast.com. If you like this podcast and you want to find some others on all different topics surrounding occupational therapy, otpodcast.com. Check it out. Find some you love. Share them with your friends. Uh, We're trying to grow this podcast community because we all feel that its benefit is exponential for our community and helping us develop and foster the next generation of therapists and the current generation so check out otpodcast.com if you're looking for something to listen to on your run on your drive to help you get to sleep maybe (laughs) this episode i had the amazing pleasure to talk to taylor douglas who is an ot student from melbourne in australia yay for another aussie accent for you guys Taylor, for a period, has experienced chronic pain, and I wanted to have a chat with her, uh, get her experience of that and dealing with the health system around that, and she was amazingly giving and came and I just had a really enjoyable conversation with her. I really hope that there are so many takeaways in this episode for therapists that will help you empathize and enable you to work better with people who might be experiencing pain particularly chronic pain and how that impacts their occupational engagement yeah so um out of high school um i had absolutely no clue um sort of what i wanted to do growing up i had this pipe dream of wanting to get into physio And I guess my lack of confidence in my ability sort of shot that down and I never really thought I could, I could do it, I guess. So coming out of high school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I went out and sort of just worked in casual retail jobs and I did some admin work and then sort of come, I think it was 2016, 2015 or 2016, I sort of went, I've got, I've got to sort of really knuckle down and do something that I really enjoy and I went back to university and did sort of a bridging course to get um, sort of a new ATAR to get into uni and the the goal was to get obviously the highest ATAR possible and if I was able to get into physio I was going to go into physio Um, but my second option when I sort of came to the assumption I wouldn't get the marks for physio I sort of ran into OT and my mum actually um, brought it up to me Um, my older brother worked with an OT briefly when he was younger and my mum was talking to me about the role of an OT and I'd never heard of an OT before. So it sort of really stood out to me and I guess I sort of latched onto that from there. I liked the the diversity of it and, um, you know, as an OT you can work in so many different places and in so many different roles and with so many different people, Um, whereas physio is sort of purely musculoskeletal. So I liked that about OT I guess um so yes did the bridging course got a really good ATAR applied um for uni and um this was back in Newcastle in New South Wales because I lived there up until I was 22 um 21 sorry so moved to Melbourne and then applied for university once I got to Melbourne and got into Deakin in Geelong and started my degree in 2017 so that's sort of my journey up to OT and I'm now in third year at the moment. So just about to finish third year OT um, and absolutely loving it. Time for placements. Yes. 
I'm doing a placement at the moment, um, full t- first full-time placement, so it's pretty pretty hectic, but, yeah, really enjoying it. And is the, the placement in an area that you thought you would want to go into at the end? No, actually. So this placement, Deacon sort of – well, Deacon organises all of our placements, but they've made this specific to a community placement. So they told everyone that they were going to be doing three days uh, at a school and two days at a community, a community organisation. Um, so I'm at Laverton College in, in Melbourne and then also at an autism support service in the city for two days a week. So, oh, so it's like split. Yeah, split into two. So three days at the school and two days at the community place. So, um, yeah, I'm only in second week. So it's very interesting, but not areas that I initially thought I wanted to get into. <laughs> but, you know, as everyone says, you don't think that you want, are going to like something and then you do a placement and you come out and a lot of the time you sort of change your mind. So, yeah, who knows where it'll take 100% my experience. Yeah? yeah? Were you not? I was no interest in mental health, not at all. And I, did you have a mental health placement? I So I had a mate who was in the year above me who was pretty similar to me in that he had no interest at all in it and then did a mental health placement and then came out the other end going, that's it, I'm working in mental health. And I was like, oh, that's big change. Yeah. Um, so I requested the same placement as him and got it, luckily. Oh, lucky. And I was the same. I was, came out the end of that placement. I'm like, I found my, my thing. Like, this is my jam. Wow. And never looked back. So, But up until that point, I was, in my head, I was going to go and work in like equipment design because I kind of had that sort of engineering brain a bit. Yeah. And that was that was my interest. It was equipment and assistive tech and that kind of stuff. And yeah, yeah. After, after mental health placement, no, nah, out the window. Yeah, it's interesting how people sort of have that, I guess, life-changing placement and it really sets them up for later on. So yeah, it's exciting. It happens so often. Like I know there's some students that don't have that opportunity uh, yeah. or don't have that sort of, I don't know what you call it, light bulb kind of moment, like this is me. Yeah. But it happens like so often that it's like it's obviously not a coincidence so yeah well I sort of had it was in first year actually my very first placement I did in spinal rehab and I think I'm pretty sure that was sort of my light bulb moment that's the direction I want to go into sort of neuro or spinal rehab is where I'm heading so far but as you said I've got still another year another couple of placements to go so who knows mental health placement you never know yeah Exactly. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? So one of the reasons why we connected and started talking on the Instas (laughs) was around the concept of, well, not the concept, but the around chronic pain and the role of the health service in general, but OTs in particular, um, because you have chronic pain, correct? Correct. Yes. Are you able to just give us an overview or like what's your experience with chronic pain? Yeah, um, I certainly can. It might be a bit of a long-winded story. but Best yeah. kind of stories. <laughs> yeah, so the beginning of this year actually, so 2019, I started experiencing pelvic pain, which was something that I've never experienced before. And I've always been a very healthy, active, fit person. I've never sort of had any type of injury. I've never broken a bone. I've hardly been sick other than the flu. You know, nothing's hit me. And then this year, it sort of crept up on me and started experiencing pelvic pain. So obviously, it was quite alarming to me. And I 
did what most people do. They head off to the doctor. And I think leading into that, I thought, you know, oh, it's all good. Like, don't freak out just yet. I'll go to the doctor. They'll tell me what to do. Give it two weeks, four weeks max, and I'll be fine. And yeah, I guess obviously that wasn't the case for me. So I went to um, over January and February, I went to half a dozen different doctors and they all did some testing and the testing came back normal in in majority of the cases. There were a couple of sort of testings that came back as a possible infection. So antibiotics were something that the doctors seemed to palm off onto me um, pretty quickly and I believed them. I I took the antibiotics and strangely, the pain went away. So the pain went away for a week or two and then it would come back. And this was sort of a um, cycle that went on over two months. So January and February, I would take the antibiotics, the pain would go away for a couple of weeks and then it would come back and then I'd go back to the doctors and so on and so on until March came and the pain returned. I went back to the doctor. They gave me more antibiotics, which looking back is kind of frustrating because it's like they were never trying to look at why it kept returning. They sort of just kept giving me antibiotics, which was looking back is quite frustrating, but that's another story. And they gave me antibiotics and the antibiotics didn't work this time. And that's when the pain became a daily occurrence and has been a daily occurrence since then. So yeah, the beginning of March, I've had pain every day since then, apart from, I think I've had maybe five pain-free days in between March and now and three of those have actually been the last three days which is it's funny that we're having this podcast now because I've had like Like it new yeah um (laughs) so yeah very very little amount of time not in pain and you know going to the doctors that time and and going back and saying look the antibiotics didn't work they did more testing and then nothing came back abnormal Um, And that was a really scary moment for me because, as I said, growing up, I never really had anything wrong with me. And I always just had this assumption in my mind that doctors could fix anything. And yeah, this obviously wasn't the case. So when I was told that we can't find anything wrong with you, we're not sure why you're experiencing this pain, that sort of sent me into panic, really. And the doctor sort of then referred me on to a gynecologist and I was like, okay, let's not let's not panic just yet. Let's go and see the specialist. She said that she specialized in pelvic pain. So I was like, great, I'm in the right hands. I'm going to the right places. The only thing with that is there was a six-week wait to get into her. And if you're ever in pain. That seems like forever, I would imagine. Seems like forever, especially the amount of pain that I was in. So that was another thing that I had to sort of swallow. And um, that was a hard pill to swallow as well. So that's when... I guess, as everyone does, we jump onto Dr. Google and try and figure things out ourselves. And and that was a vicious sort of cycle that I got into. Um, I had a very long wait ahead of me before I could see someone who may not even be able to help me. So I sort of took things into my own hands and tried to educate myself. And, And that was quite, you know, the education side of things, there were some things that were very helpful. And then there were other things that weren't helpful at all and really sent me down quite a bad or set me up into a a bad mindset, I guess. So I went and saw a physio. I figured it can't help. I've got six, um, it can't hurt. Sorry. I've got six weeks to wait. Um, Six weeks to wait. I may as well go and get a physio's opinion. So at that point in time, were you in your head thinking like it's muscular? Is that why you were thinking physio or like what was... Yeah. Well, the physio that I particularly went to was a, a women's health physio. So I thought it could be muscular 
the research that I was doing was saying that, you know, the muscles surrounding the pelvic area can sometimes refer pain to certain areas and cause, you know, my pain was specifically more of like a burning pain. So it was a nerve pain um, related thing. So it was kind of hard to tell. I wasn't sure whether it was muscular. I wasn't sure what it was really. You were just Um, willing to give anything a crack to see if you get some relief from it. Correct. So I went to see the physio and she thought that I guess there were some things that she could work with, um, which mm-hmm. gave me a bit of hope. And she gave me some exercises to do to, lo- to loosen up some, some muscles that she said that were particularly tight and that could be causing this pain. So that was sort of the first bit of hope that I had. And I followed these exercises to a T and nothing nothing worked. Funnily enough, even though I didn't really see any results, I continued to go just because she said that it, it wouldn't be an immediate result that I would see anyway and to give it time. So I continued with that up until I saw the gynecologist. Mm-hmm. Saw the gynecologist, all she really did was give me some nerve pain medication to try. And that can be sort of like a process of two to six months before the medication fully kicks in. Um, and what yep. it's supposed to do is bring your nervous system down so that the nerve pain hopefully dies down and again the medication didn't seem to have a whole lot of an effect maybe a a tiny little bit of an effect and that's why I continued to take it so they were sort of the two things that I I stuck with for a while and then I added acupuncture onto that after a little while as well and again didn't see any results with that so I guess yeah the the avenues that I went down didn't seem to have any effect and and of course as anyone can imagine that was really scary for me yeah I bet. and also financially taxing as well um the financial stress of that was huge um and still is huge like i'm still in a lot of debt because of the whole process and being a uni student as you can imagine money isn't um <laughs> not usually flush yeah. yeah so um that was an additional stress on top of that so when it when it first started was it something that was like really rapid like you just woke up one day and it was like there or was it sort of gradual over a few weeks or yeah I mean I remember the very first instance of it like I woke up and it was like really bad I'm talking like probably a six or a seven out of ten and I was holy shit um okay and then went off to the doctor had the antibiotics and that died down so and that was sort of a process and then once it actually kicked in from March so once everything else was ineffective and I started experiencing the daily pain, it was sort of like at a manageable level. It, it wasn't super excruciating to the point where I had to lie in bed all day. I could still sort of get on with my day-to-day activities, but it was more the cognitive effects that it was having on me and on my mental health as well. So yeah, it was gradual to an extent and it certainly got worse in the first couple of months. So was it was it more coming in kind of like waves and they just got more frequent yeah. or like through I mean like throughout the day or was it just constant pain throughout the day? Yeah, so I would have periods without pain, uh, which was kind of the random thing. I never knew when it was going to hit me, and that was also very fear fear eliciting. You know, when when yeah. I'm going out and doing something and I'm not in pain you're constantly anticipating when it's going to hit you and what you're going to do in the moment that it does hit you, especially in times where you're somewhere where you need to be, such as work, and you don't have any pain relief methods. It's it's quite um, a scary thing. Yeah. I guess leading on from that, I'm at a point now where things have really started to improve. I'm certainly still getting daily pain, as I said. However, the last three days, miraculously, I've had essentially no pain, the tiniest little niggle here and there, but 
but I wouldn't even consider that. So, so the pain that you're getting, like recently, like out of ten, like roughly, how like how painful is it? Yeah. So on average, I would say like it sort of sits at a one or a two out of ten. So okay. it's it's certainly more manageable now, and yep. that's I'm not. I guess I'll backtrack a bit. I sort of was seeing the physio, the gynecologist, and the acupuncturist up until about July this year, and I sort of over this time was doing my own research and sort of educating myself on pain science. And I really sort of delved down that track to try and understand what was going on within my body better. And mm-hmm. that, that was certainly a really effective thing. And, and it was, it was hard because I sort of had to do that myself. And I was kind of surprised that doctors and health professionals didn't sort of lead me down that education path. And I guess that's where an OT would have been really helpful because they probably education's one thing that we we help patients with so yeah I sort of put my OT hat on went down the education path and and really started to learn more about what was happening which was sort of relieving in a sense and the other thing that really helped me was my partner Daniel is a physio um so pain is sort of his thing he knows a lot about how it works and obviously chronic pain is is different to acute pain so it wasn't really something he could help with however Mm -hmm. from an education point of view he was really helpful and really supportive. So I'm really grateful um, for him in that sense. But I, I stumbled across some books and a recommendation from someone to look into Dr. John Sarno's work. And I'm not sure, I'm assuming you haven't heard about his work, but he sort of has the approach to chronic pain from a mind-body perspective. So he sort of talks about, obviously, we don't experience pain without the without the brain. So he sort of delves down that track. And his theories are a little bit off track to what sort of Western medicine would consider appropriate or accepting. And it's it's not something that everyone would sort of hear and believe, but it's something that I was willing to consider because I was basically desperate. Mm-hmm. Um, so his theories are basically that your internal state, so your emotions and your psychological state mm-hmm. can actually contribute to, or we know it can contribute to pain. Yeah, yeah. His theories are that repressed emotion or built up emotion within the body can actually be detected as a danger to your body and your body can send out pain to alert you of that danger well that's that's essentially what pain is is it's a a body warning about something usually it's you know physical injury or something like that but exactly i mean it's it's a warning a flag exactly so his theories are that you know emotions can basically cause the same physiological response within your body. Yep, I can see that. Mm-hmm. So that's a very <laughs> broad or basic very version of simplified, his Simplified, yep. But yeah, I, I sort of, without going into too much detail, I've had um, a little bit of a difficult upbringing and I've certainly had a few traumatic events in my childhood that I haven't sort mm-hmm. of worked through and I had some built-up emotion and repressed sort of anger and, and different feelings within me that I hadn't sort of worked through. So... I sort of, the methods that he suggests to work through this are, um, one is journaling, or you can even go down the track of seeing a psychologist to help work through that. And they're two things that I've actually started to implement. So I I, I just began journaling and within three days, I saw a pretty significant difference in my pain, which I was... Wow. You know, at this point, I wasn't completely convinced that that's what was going on, but, you know. Because it seems like it's one of those things that seems like so, like, not even connected oh, unless you sort of, like, journaling pain. pain. Like, 
most people would probably consider the journaling actually painful, but yeah, well, like, it is. You, yes, <laughs> you wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't. It's not something that would, I think, instantly be like come to mind when you think like chronic pain, like journaling. Got it. Oh, exactly. And obviously, doctors don't even consider this. Well, it's interesting because, like you were saying, that some of his theories are a bit sort of not uh, not aligned. I'll say with Western medicine. Yeah. But like what you were just talking about then fits really well with something that I know and I, I teach. Mm. I am a big fan. I don't know if you've heard of Dr. Daniel Siegel, who's also a psychologist. I haven't, no. He's written a number of books on all different things. A lot of his recent stuff is around like raising kids and stuff, but a lot of his, his one of his, work, uh, his books is called Mindsight and it talks about essentially trying to educate people on what the mind actually is mm-hmm. and the impact that that can have on people's health and people's well-being and that kind of stuff. And I, I look at it um, with some of my students this semester from the, a well-being perspective Mm-hmm. But I think one of the the really awesome takeaways I get from that book in particular and a lot of his other work is around what the mind is and his, I guess, summarized definition because he talks about the fact that like it's either really unclear or there's a thousand different definitions of what the mind actually is as opposed to cognition being it being different. A lot of yep. cultures looking at the mind as more of that sort of soul, spiritual kind of thing, but... His definition about the mind looks at it being an entity that helps control and moderate energies and I can't remember what the other thing, it slipped my mind, but essentially like moderate the energies around your body. So whether it's you know sensory or emotional or that kind of stuff, the mind is the part of your body that actually regulates that. So if that's, yeah. you know, you've got something that is essentially making, causing some sort of dysfunction in the mind, like that energy has to go somewhere. And I think that kind of fits with the, the summary that you've just given. Yeah. So to me, that makes perfect sense to me. I know there's probably a lot of people listening and going, I don't get it. Yeah. I could sit here and try and sort of delve down that, that route and, and explain it further. But I, and as I mentioned to you, I have a few resources that I will recommend at the end that people can go and have and a if look there's at. Any, there's links. I'll, I can add links to the show notes. People can go and research to their heart's content. I'll put the link to, to the book that I'm talking about as well. Yeah, of course. It, I think that'll really be a much better. Yeah, that'll be a, a better way to, to get the, the message across the, without me trying the to butcher side it. Of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah but, but I guess everyone sort of knows about things such as, you know, if you have a stressful day, you get a headache or physiological responses like that to stress, everyone's sort of aware of, but no one sort of considers that the pain can show up in different ways. Um, I mean, back in the day, there used to be heaps about, you know, people getting ulcers because of stress. And, you know, these theories are basically exactly the same thing. And and chronic pain um, sort of in these books and in these theories can be pelvic pain, neck pain, back pain's a huge one for people, but it can also be headaches, it can be skin conditions, it can be um, irritable bowel syndrome, you know, fibromyalgia, all these different sort of chronic conditions can be a cause of this. And the resources that I'll link to this to this show, um, there's a website where people um, leave reviews. Dr. John Sino actually passed away a couple of years ago. So everyone sort of jumped on and left all these reviews about how he helped them 
basically mm-hmm. reclaim their life. And there's thousands of people on there talking about how they did this work and they had 10, 20 years of chronic pain. They did this work and now they've been pain-free for years and it hasn't returned. So there's certainly evidence out there to back that this is this is a, an effective treatment for chronic pain and it's not an easy process. There's some people out there and there's there's some stories that I heard of people just reading his books apparently their chronic pain just disappeared because it was that awareness of what was going on that actually got them out of that pain cycle. But then there's people who it took one to two years of them doing this work on a daily basis and working through that internal, the memories that are stored in the brain and the emotions that come along with it. Some people have had extremely traumatic past, so it's not going to be a five-minute job for them to get through that all and to... To work through it so it can be different for everyone and that, that's one of those that's one of those things i say to a lot of people like you didn't end up this way overnight usually yeah. like so it's not gonna be an overnight fix yeah exactly and i i think one of the the things that i i really do see a, an area for ot to work with is for not just this type of stuff but any long-term treatment is like that's that takes a toll on people and I think that OT also has a place in that particular transition of unwell to well, however long it is, in actually supporting people and helping people build the resilience just to get through the treatment. A hundred percent. Yeah. Especially so that, yeah. that's a little interest area of mine that I might touch on down the track. Yeah, of course. I think I think OTs and I didn't you know, strangely enough I didn't consider an OT in my treatment, Mm. whether that's because I feel like I've got the OT knowledge myself or whether it just wasn't something that I considered because I was didn't know what we did. Well yeah, and I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty resilient. You know, there hasn't been many times where this pain has stopped me in my tracks and I haven't been able to get on with my day to day life and my occupation. So I guess an OT didn't sort of pop up as a Mm -hmm. as an option. But OTs can certainly help in that sense because I think the beauty about OTs is we're not like doctors where we've got five, 10 minutes to see someone and, you, you know, we can actually sit down with people and provide that support and give them space to talk about what they've been going through and, and talk about what they need help with. And that's something that I really found eye-opening in my journey through the medical world is there was maybe one or two out of a dozen practitioners that I saw that actually sort of gave me the time of day or even seemed like they were interested or cared about what I was going through. And that sort of just adds to the stress of chronic pain too, because you feel like you're not understood. You feel like it sort of increases that sense of hopelessness, I guess. You, you, yeah. You're already sort of struggling to come to terms with, you know, people don't understand what's going on. Maybe I'm going to be living with this my entire life. And all you want to do is go and see someone who can just provide you either education or just that support a lot of the time I wasn't walking into to people's offices to get a diagnosis or to to get that magic pill that's going to fix me I would have preferred the ones that I did really come away and go wow like they're really good at what they do I didn't actually come away with any information that was going to help me it was more they sort of sat down and they were raw and honest and they were like look we don't understand what's going on with you but I understand that this is a really hard time for you and I can only imagine what you're going through and, and tell me about what you're going through and how do you feel? And they gave me that space to tell my story and to actually listen to me. And I preferred that so much more over someone who was like, 
oh, yeah, I think it's this. Here, do this, this, and this. See you later. Funnily enough, that is exactly what I was teaching our second years this week with regards to therapeutic use of self. And one of the biggest things is the the whole purpose behind the concept is the client needs to feel like they like that you get them. Yeah. Like it doesn't like you and exactly pretty much exactly what you just explained is what I said. Like it doesn't I mean it does matter, but in the grand scheme of things, what you actually do with them doesn't mean squat if you can't build that therapeutic alliance to start with. A hundred percent. Like if you you know, we can teach you all the communication skills in the world. We can teach you the process and, you know, you have to build rapport and all of that stuff. It's really, and it stands out like, you know what, when a clinician is faking interest or they're distracted or, you know, they're emotionally guarded with regards to whatever's being talked about, whether they've had a bad morning or whatever it is, that just creates a concrete wall between you and the person that you're trying to connect with. And we can't have that. We need to uh, be able to be self-aware enough to know what we're bringing to the table so we don't, and this is one of the other things I was teaching them, like you need to get out of your own way, essentially. You need to be self-aware enough to get out of the way so that your whatever it is going on for you outside of that room isn't blocking that particular person's progress mm-hmm. yeah uh-huh. so yeah, i just found a really uh, not amusing but like uh reassuring that your story is exactly <laughs> what i was talking about on monday in the lecture yeah i think i think it is so important and before i went through this process as an ot you know I thought I was empathetic and I thought I understood what people might be going through when their daily life is interrupted by something um, like pain or an illness or an injury. We all assume that we, we understand what people are going through, but it's, it's, it's so hard to truly understand how just devastating it can be for people until you're in it. And I'm not saying that everyone needs to go out and, you know, get themselves some chronic pain. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just to say that having that empathy is so important, but how you think they feel is probably nothing in compared to how they actually feel. And it's really important just to have that awareness and to have that compassion and that empathy for people because, yeah, it can be really hard. And that sort of leads me down into the track of, you know, depression. I feel like I've been walking on real thin ice um, a lot of the time this year. And as I said before, like I feel like I'm a pretty resilient person, but this, yeah, there's just really no words. Sometimes it can just really hit you hard and really make you question your life and yourself and, you know, that that self-efficacy has just gone because yeah. you can no longer do the things that you want to do. And I guess for me it was really hard as well because, I felt like I could sort of, like it wasn't stopping my body from moving. Like I could still walk, I could still go places and do things. It was more that mental health impact and the cognitive impact that it was having on me, you know, paying attention, going to uni. I stopped going to uni for basically all of first semester because, well, firstly, I lived two hours away from uni. So sitting for two hours is essentially impossible when Mm. you have this pain. But 
not only that, it's like your memory and your concentration and your motivation to do things is just completely gone because you've just got this pain screaming at you and taking all of your attention. So, you know, there's just so many different aspects that it can have an impact on someone's life in chronic pain. And, you know, it's really important for people to have that support, not just from a therapeutic sense, but including people's families in the process I think is is quite an important thing as well because okay. although I have a super supportive family friends and partner it, it's really hard when you're in amongst chronic pain to really reach out to people and try and explain what you're going through and I felt like a lot of the time I was just shutting off and I was shutting down and pulling away from people because I felt like I no one really understood and it wasn't until I really <laughs> got in in amongst it and you know three four months in where I was like this is obviously not going to be a, a short-lived thing I've, I've really got to make use of my support system because mm-hmm. I can't do this alone like it, it was impossible it's almost like you're reading my mind because I I <laughs> had a little uh rant about something similar recently on yeah where everyone puts their rants on Facebook. <laughs> of course, yeah. About uh, the Are You Okay Day. Uh, and my perspective on it was I see all these people, like this day rolls around. I think it's an amazing initiative and, I, I, you know, it fits in. It's my area of practice and I love it. But I see all of these people and every day or every that day every year they'll put on Facebook, like if you're, you know, if you need me, just reach out and I'll be there for you. And yeah. my thing is like people that are the people that need that connection aren't in a place to reach out of course you need to reach out to them because otherwise it's going to be too late before you even find out in for that instance but it's it's the same with chronic pain by the sound like if you're in the thick of it like it's so consuming Mm -hmm. almost Did, did you find there was any other feelings around like stigma or guilt or anything around yeah yeah Yeah, definitely so um I guess for me being a woman with pelvic pain it's not like back pain where Mm. you can sort of just you know you're at work you're in pain oh mate like I'm having a really hard day my back is killing me like it's just it's not quite especially uh, just for me, maybe um, it just doesn't seem like something I feel like talking about with, with anyone and everyone. So that, that was certainly hard. And I, I really struggled with that. And I think there were actually times I won't lie that I was in so much pain. I could no longer hide it. And I ended up just telling people that, you know, I had really bad back pain. I was just having a really bad day because I was, I felt like I just couldn't, I was embarrassed nearly just to talk about Mm -hmm. That I had pelvic pain and I didn't think it was something that people would sort of accept or want to talk about. So back pain sort of was the next thing that I thought people would understand. Um, and that was my way of getting people to sort of get on my level and understand what I was going through. But it was it was a shame really. Like I sort of look back now and it, it's it's kind of sad, I guess, that I, I don't feel like I can talk about that to people. And I, I feel like that stigma should be shut down like many things, mental health, for example, mm. when I was struggling the most, you know, I, I, I really struggle. And this is pro- <laughs> talking about pain being caused by repressed emotions. Like I really struggle to talk about my emotions to people. And that's something I've had to get over. And I think that's really helped in my, in my journey really, um, is just being able to turn to my partner and be like, babe, I'm having a really shit day. I really need your support. Can you do this for me? 
can you sit here and just be with me? Can I talk to you? Can I vent? Can I do this? Can I cry? Like, can you I, do my assignment? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I did not condone that kind of behavior. <laughs> yes, he has said, well, yes, that is the benefit of having a physio for a partner when you're an OT. There's certainly things you can go to him for. But yeah, it's just, it's just been a real, a real challenging process for me to be able to get past that stigma and get past that, I guess, shame and, and just be like, this is going to be a long-term thing. I've just got to come to terms with it. And I've got to I think that's, it. I think that's something that a lot of people can, that feeling is something that a lot of people can probably relate to for whether it's chronic pain or, you know, anything else, you know, yeah. sore foot, whatever it is. Like, I think that stigma seems to be one of the main reasons a lot of people don't seek the help that they may need mm-hmm. for, for any reason. Like, I know, like, I've been really low before and, you know, to the point of depression. And I remember feeling the first sort of real emotion that I'd felt after I'd sort of put two and two together and worked it out was, dude, you work in mental health. How did you not see this? Yeah. Like, you're obviously shit at what you do. Like, that was the very first thought that I had. I'm like, none of this, like, be kind to yourself. And oh, I know. It was like, so you are useless. Network. Yeah. And, and that and that's exactly it, is that a lot of the time you don't even put two and two together until you're well past that finish line. Mm-hmm. So it, I think that there's space for people. Well, I think we need to somehow, whether it's just connecting with each other more, Make that space for people to feel more comfortable to talk about it, whatever it is, whether it's childhood things or pain or, you know, you've got an itchy toe, whatever it is, like whatever people need, are feeling embarrassed about or feeling like they can't talk about. There's obviously a reason and it's generally a societal reason or a cultural reason why they feel like they can't talk about it. Exactly. And I think it's we need to make the space, make it okay to talk to to talk about things whatever it is whether it's like dude i feel like hurting myself yeah the number of people that would never say that to anyone if it was happening because they're afraid of what might happen next because people don't know how to deal with it or they're gonna put me in hospital or they'll think i'm crazy or whatever it is like we need to make the space and i think one of the the good things we need to not I, i guess get make more open and get that out there is that it's not always about opening up to your mates. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some people that feel really comfortable with that. Me personally, I feel probably more comfortable with that than talking to our stranger, but there's services available, especially in Australia. I can't speak for every country, but in Australia, you know, we have on terms of the world, uh, I know we whinge about it a lot, but we have a really good healthcare system. Oh, for sure. On the whole, it's got its issues. It's not perfect, but I know. compared to a lot of countries, compared to some countries that don't have one, we have a really good healthcare system. We have services available that can support you, even until you're at a stage where you feel like, okay, I'm confident enough now that I can probably disclose and talk with my friends and my family, and my my partner, my whatever. There's no sort of reason. I'm sure okay, that's a bad way of saying it. There's no real systemic reason why people should be left sort of in the dark. I think it's just a cultural thing. 
that we need to break. And there's only one way to do that, and that's talking to each other. And I know that's scary for some people, especially, you know, millennials and people who like to talk to them, people through these and through telephones and Snapchat and whatever else is popular now. Man, I'm sounding old. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But that's the only way we're going to fix things is if we actually genuinely connect with people again. And it's so, it's so powerful too. Like, I think, as you said, everyone um, has a really hard time opening up to other people. And I think we forget that everyone is going through something. Yeah. We sometimes just feel so isolated and so alone that, you know, you forget that other people go through shit too and other people are struggling as well, even though they might not look like it. And I'm a huge advocate for speaking up and reaching out to people if you're struggling and I think that was a hard thing to accept for myself because when I was in that position, I found it really hard to reach out and ask for help when I needed it. And it wasn't until I took that step and, you know, you hear all the time, once you take that step, you know, it's the best thing you'll ever do. But really it's 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 powerful to talk to other people and often enough they'll, you know, they'll say something back and, and talk about their experience as well and you're like, shit like I didn't realize you were going through that and then all of a sudden you feel connected and you feel like you're not alone and I think as you said the only way that we can get past this stigma is just for more people to be open about what they're going through because I I know mental health is becoming more um I guess more talked about now than it it, Mm, it, more prominent Mm. but it's still you know a huge a huge thing not a lot of people are talking about it um and I think one day we'll get there but as you said, there's resources out there that can really help. And I, a few years ago, reached out to Headspace, which was a really good service because it was, because I'm under 25, I got 10 free sessions a year. And that was... Because for, for people that aren't in Australia, it's a, like a youth and young adult mental health service available yeah. all across Australia. I think. Yeah, definitely all across there. Australia. Because I remember I started going there when I was living in New South Wales. And then when I got here in Victoria, I um I reached out to them again and yeah, as I said, you get 10 free sessions a year. So, you know, obviously being young and often in uni or school, you don't have support. You're in a situation where money's not available. It's certainly a really good service and the people there are really helpful. So I utilised that service up until actually this year, until my uni circumstances and placement sort of stopped me from being able to access that service during the opening hours. So I had to reach out and find a private psychologist. But yeah, that there's some really good services out there and I just want to backtrack and, and sort of say, even though I was sort of talking about how my experience with a lot of healthcare professionals was quite negative, that's not to say that everyone's negative. There's there's amazing doctors and, and healthcare professionals yeah. out there. So don't hesitate to get help if you need it. And certainly, yeah, seeing a psychologist is probably the best thing that I ever did. And especially going through this chronic pain journey, it, it's been extremely helpful. And as I said, you know, I've had some of the best days that I've had lately and it's been because I've really been dedicating my time to doing this work and and working on myself. I've actually got to a point where in August I saw that the the healthcare professionals that I was seeing, the acupuncturist, the, the physio, the gynecologist, um, I wasn't getting any benefit from that. And that was a call that I had to make and I, I stopped seeing them. It was a scary decision because there was a lot of reliance around them for for a long time and I I sort of had this fear that if I stopped seeing them my pain would get worse and it was a really hard decision but 
I stopped seeing them and I've been able to sort of take that responsibility on myself of helping myself and having control of my pain to an extent. I feel like I'm more in control of my pain now than I have been ever and and that's just because I've advocated for myself and I've done the work myself instead of relying on other people and I think that's really empowering and I know not everyone can get by without having help from other people and that's fine but my experience is and I think the message that I'm trying to put out there is trust yourself and and you're the only one that knows your body the best you're the only one that knows what goes on in your mind and there's doctors or people out there that are telling you that they can't figure out what's going on with you but you you know something's wrong you know keep looking keep searching keep researching I was really lucky that I came across the resources that I did that actually have landed me in the position now where I feel like I've really been able to, I guess, heal my pain in a sense. And, you know, I've had three days of essentially pain-free, which is just incredible, to be honest. When you've had nine months of pain and you have three pain-free days, it's like the best thing in the world. So, and I can only really put that down to the work that I've done myself. I'm not seeing anyone else apart from psychologists. So the mind is very powerful, which is something really discovered and you know you can do you can help yourself a lot of the time which is yeah really empowering I guess and I think that like kind of brings up uh, another point that I was thinking about about I guess from my outsider's perspective my and knowing a few people that have had you know different issues with pain over the their time the the default westernized health I guess trajectory for those people are go and see the doctor the doctor gives you medication to mm-hmm. dumb like dull down the pain or numb the pain or whatever whatever the medication's meant to do definitely not a medication mm-hmm. expert obviously and <laughs> that's it that's how it's dealt with until the pain goes away and then you can stop the medication and i think there's a few fundamental flaws in that process because i can guarantee like if i went to someone who had never had any experience with it and said, if you had chronic pain, what would you do? That would probably be the answer. It would be like, I'm going to go to the doctor. More than likely, the doctor's going to give me pain meds. uh, And then, you know, I'll heal from that sort of thing. And I think that some of the fundamental flaws and and something you mentioned before, I I found it very interesting that your default description about some of the, the things that you found that have really helped or helped explain it was, oh, oh, I know it's not really looked upon in Western medicine as, you know, au and that kind of thing. When yeah. I think it's almost, I, I think as OTs and the we should be encouraging this in our clients to have that level of open-mindedness about other things. Like, yes, I know there are... Uh, you know, snake oil salesmen that will, you know, I've got the cure for, for chronic pain, blah, blah, blah. But yeah. I would like to believe that we are educated enough and science-based enough to be able to try and yeah. weed some of that information out for our clients and ourselves if it's if it's us. Yeah. But I think yeah. being open-minded to things, because I'm the first person to put my hand up and say, there was a time when I was so close-minded to anything that wasn't sort of Western medicine-based, like any, like mindfulness even. I am one of, I would say, a, a massive encourager for people to do things like meditation and mindfulness and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Three, no, how long ago? Maybe five years ago, I would have been like, what is this hippie rubbish? 
<laughs> Absolutely no way that couldn't possibly work. This is yeah. just a load. Go back and get your medications. <laughs> but yeah, I think through being for no other reason really than you know I had some friends that were more I think open minded than me and encouraging me to look at other things. And obviously they're not OTs, but me looking at it from an OT perspective, I'm like, there's real value in a lot of these things, even if it's, dare I say, a placebo effect, whatever it is. Like the placebo effect is something that I think is really interesting from an ethical point of view because Mm -hmm. it's still doing something. Like it's not doing any harm and it's essentially fixing something. So something that elicits a placebo effect for someone is like still a valid treatment. It it is, yeah. And it's interesting from the perspective of the placebo effect essentially is just because someone thinks differently about the situation that they're in and they sort of have that positive, yeah, outlook on it. So they have this, it's it's like changing the way that you see something. And then that to me says that, well, then why couldn't the theories that I'm talking about work where you're actually working on your cognitive behavior and your CBT is something that obviously can be effective in chronic pain, but actually changing the way that um, you think and you behave and working through some things that might be sort of built up inside you, even if you can't come to terms with that actually being effective, what's the worst case scenario? You get to know yourself better. You potentially get rid of some let's say, negative behaviours and you have a better outlook on life. Like that's, I guess, what started me on that journey is like, well, what's the worst case scenario? Like I, I try this and I've still, and got, pain. I've still got pain, but mentally I'm going to be feeling a lot better. That was sort of the worst case scenario. So why wouldn't you try these things? And I think it is important to be really open-minded to other things because I've certainly become or started to understand that you know, medication and and numerous other treatments, Western medicine sort of has that Band-Aid approach. Um, I feel so like reactive, a lot of the, yeah. yeah, they're sort of trying to treat, treat the, the symptoms, symptom and not, not the, the cause. actual cause, mm-hmm. um, which is what really frustrated me in my journey because it was like over a two-month period, I went and saw half a dozen doctors. They all gave me antibiotics, but no one actually wanted to figure out what was causing this recurrence in the first place, which is kind of mind boggling because it's like, what did they think was going to happen? Like if it's going to keep returning, then it's going to keep returning. Something else is wrong. Even if it is a, you know, something that needs antibiotics, obviously there's something else going on. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's really important that although, you know, doctors are so knowledgeable and sometimes their knowledge only goes so far and there's some things that they can't help with. Um, And that was certainly the case for my situation anyway. I always found it just such a fascinating conundrum as a profession that like we, each of the different sort of health professions have their specialty, Mm -hmm. but doctors are kind of, they're expected to know like every disease and every condition and every possible. I'm like, that's too much information for any human to know and be know. able to like use effectively. Like I get specialist doctors. I think that's the way that yeah. most doctors should be. But I think general practitioners have it so hard because oh, they're they do. Hats expected off to, them, really. to know 
everything. Yeah. And at the end of the day, they're just telling you what they've been taught. Like they're not out there to do wrong by anyone. All the doctors that I saw, they were just doing their job and they were doing giving me what they knew essentially. So um, although I sit back and sort of am a little bit frustrated about it, it's like that's the way that they were taught and that's how Western medicine is is taught these days. So they're doing their job and that's sort of how I had to accept it. But that just shows that, yeah, you've really got to look outside the box sometimes if you're in a situation where got a in quotation marks incurable situation that's unknown or yeah you've got to really look outside the box and be really open-minded because sometimes it can lead down a really surprising path and and you might find that something that you didn't think was going to work actually worked and yeah you're going to be better off for it so I think yeah that's really important and the other thing I wanted to mention is I think from an OT perspective just with my OT hat on, the other thing I was really surprised at was um, my physio actually recommended that I stop weightlifting because of what was the pain that I was experiencing, which makes total sense. And I understand that initially it's good to take precaution because if that's causing my pain, then good. But after a while, when there was no difference between me training and me not training, In you know, I was level. really surprised. Sorry? In pain level, you mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there was no change in pain from you know, whether I trained or whether I didn't train, but she still recommended that I not do weight training. There came a point where I was like, maybe we need to reassess this because this is a really important part of my life. And giving that up sort of just added to that sense of disability, really. It was like I had to give up all these other things and I felt like I was restricted because I was in so much pain. But this was the one thing that I was like, you know, really gave me that boost and really helped with my mental health. And now all of a sudden I'm being told not to not to do that. So it got to a point, probably two months, I, I didn't do any weight training. And I sort of went back to my physio and was like, hang on, like, can't we modify the task? Can't we sort of look at this in a different perspective? Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to do no lower body training if if that's what you recommend. Can I at least do upper body training? And we sort of came to an agreement. Sort of, I I got my partner Daniel involved. He's a physio, and he was actually my powerlifting coach at the time before I started experiencing this pain. So he sort of got on board, and we came up with a plan, a modified program, um, and I was able to get back to to training, and that really gave me that boost and that confidence and that sense of self-worth I guess just being able to do something that I really enjoyed still and yeah obviously OTs know that that's super important but any other health professionals out there just obviously take that into consideration because when someone's going through something and their day-to-day life being affected the last thing you want to do is take away something that's really meaningful to them and um, especially if it's not necessary so that's something I found really interesting about my journey and it was something I had to advocate for myself I sort of had to challenge her and was like, I understand that this is sort of your point of view, but can you sort of see things from my point of view for a moment? And um, we were able to come up with a plan and it worked. And it, it was hard though, because she had told me to stop weight training because of its potential impact on my pain. When I returned, it sort of, it had planted that seed in my mind that weight training was bad for me. So then it was a process of deconditioning my mind to see weightlifting is a bad thing and there were periods where I felt as though you know I would basically walk into the gym and my pain would would be triggered interesting um, because I had sort of associated training with pain yep. and obviously 
if your body detects that you're doing something dangerous, yeah, something noxious, yeah, it, it was triggering my pain. So there was a process where I had to really bring the training back a little bit and really start like super basic just to sort of get that confidence back. And I basically self-talk was a huge thing for me. I had to basically every time I was doing you know, any type of lift, I was like, I'm okay. I'm not doing anything dangerous. You know, this isn't bad for my body. And like, it sounds kind of probably a bit weird to some people, but I really had to like decondition myself. Yeah. yeah, Like really retrain my brain not to see what I was doing as dangerous. And um, yeah, I got to a point where, yeah, I became really confident with my ability to control my pain and really became confident with this process of working on myself and I got back into weight training. I reintroduced lower body exercises, obviously very slowly and like graded exposure and all that kind of stuff. But now I'm back to a point where I'm training. Obviously, I've lost a lot of muscle since I was training, so I'm not quite at the level that I was prior, but I'm lifting to the intensity that I was prior to um, my pain and I can now train without triggering my pain, which has been a really big process. But the point I'm trying to make is, because essentially my physio had told me that weight training was bad for me. Yeah, you made that link. It really set me back in that sense and it really took a long time for me to be able to walk into the gym and not have a complete anxiety attack. Um, so, yeah, just that importance of language around your patients. And Yeah, I think, I think it's really interesting what you said before about uh, being essentially told to take something away that was really meaningful added to the feeling of disability. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. that is something like that's really powerful, especially given like where our profession sits on this sort of healthcare spectrum in that, yeah. you know, one of the, the things that I advocated on here and I advocated, you know, in my own life, like one of the things I firmly believe with OT is one of the most important concepts we need to get our head around is meaning because yeah. that, itself like all of the stuff we talked about before with regards to the mind and its impact a lot of that has its sort of basis in meaning like what's meaningful like i can take something away like if i took homework away from a kid they're not going to care they don't yeah. care about that they're like if you take it i don't care yeah. but if i try to take away something really meaningful from someone like your your powerlifting like your, your strength training that is going to have an impact on people. We already know that if it's the like a direct injury, say you you know hurt your leg and you can't squat, we know that's yeah. very obvious to us. Like, oh my god, like we need to get this person back to doing that because it's going to impact yeah. their well being. The longer they're out of it, and it's something they really value, and it's meaningful to them, and it holds all these purposes for them, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But when it's something, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, like invisible. Mm-hmm. And the recommendation is whether it's from an OT or a physio or anyone. When the recommendation is, oh, maybe you shouldn't do that, we all of a sudden forget that it's the same process. So whether yeah. we're recommending that the someone doesn't engage in a certain occupation or they have a very visible, obvious injury that is stopping them from doing it, mentally for them, they're losing an occupation that's very valuable. We still need to take that into account, like you said. And yeah. I, I think you're lucky in that stage because you recognize that. And whether that's, you know, partly due to your OT training or just, you know, who you are and you're very self-aware, mm. that 
there are people out there that wouldn't be able to self-recognize that, oh, shit, this is going to happen when, you know, if I stop training or if they take this away from me. Yeah. You see the same thing, or just as a sort of example, I see the same thing or hear about the same thing a lot when, uh, for people that work with the elderly, when they talk about, like, taking away their license, something like that. Like, mm-hmm. it's, I understand the reasons why, because I've just sort of had similar with a, a family member of my own, I understand the yeah. reasons why we need to sometimes take someone's license away for their safety, for others' safety. I understand all of that. But that doesn't, whether it's that process or they are physically injured and can't drive, mentally the process of losing an engagement, an, an occup, engagement in an occupation that they value Mm-hmm. Is the same. We need to treat it the same. Like if we're going to take this occupation away from someone, we still need to work with them regarding filling that need. Whether 100%. It's, yeah, I, I, I see it a, a lot in a whole range of different practice areas where almost like two standards, like, oh, you've got an injury that's stopping you from doing that. Okay, we can work with that. Or we're going to take this away from you because A, B, C, D, whether they're completely valid reasons or not. And for some reason, when that happens, we forget about meaning and all of a sudden it's yeah. about safety or risk or whatever it is. Yeah. I, I see I used to see it a lot in mental health where risk would outweigh meaning and it used to shit me to tears. A hundred percent. And it's it's yeah, it's it's like they're nearly they're sort of just looking at the injury and not the person. They're not considering sort of the person behind the decisions that they're making. And yeah, I think that's super important. Um if I want to relate this to chronic pain in general from a physio perspective, I think acute pain and chronic pain, I feel like need to have two different approaches. Um, obviously, acute pain, you've got to give the area time to heal and all that kind of stuff. So keeping off it, not doing things is completely valid. But in a chronic pain perspective, when this is potentially a lifelong thing, taking something away from them is is potentially going to be then lifelong because they're never they're potentially not going to get to a point when they're not going to be in pain. And that's that's where I got with my physio is I was like, so when are we going to reintroduce this? And she was sort of like, oh, when you start having pain-free days. And I'm like, but what if that never what happens? If that doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, and that's when I gave it more time, and then I wasn't getting pain-free days, so I was like, we need to come around this some you know, a different way. And I think that's really important when you get to that point with chronic pain patients is giving them that confidence and that education to empower them and and not elicit fear in them. Fear avoidance is a huge thing with chronic pain patients. And it's something that I really struggled with. Sitting in certain positions became, I would avoid that and then it would put stress on other areas. So my back would hurt and all this kind of stuff. Fear avoidance in exercise, you know, people were like no I can't go walking because what if my back hurts or what if this affects me and I think it's really important to give your patients that confidence in themselves and obviously you have to take precaution because you don't want to do or get them to do anything that's gonna you know affect them you know walking for example obviously you know that's not dangerous so reintroducing those movements and sort of just trying to educate them and and get them to a point where they're more resilient to their pain. Pain resilience is something that I've sort of taught myself. It wasn't something that I had someone help me with. And it's been really powerful for me because when I look at where I am now compared to where I was at the beginning of the year, 
even if I'm only in sort of a two out of 10 pain, it's not affecting me nowhere near as much now mentally, emotionally, physically as the same amount of pain would have at the beginning of the year. And that's because I've sort of built up that resilience to the pain. And I think, yeah, that's really important to do that with your patients because if it is a lifelong thing, they can't just lie in their bed all day and do nothing. Got to learn to be resilient and they've got to learn to move past that and be able to still do the things that they like doing each day despite the pain. So I think that's really important as well. Yeah, and I think it's something else that you just touched on before, like looking at the difference between sort of chronic and acute pain. Again, you're reading my mind, but uh, <laughs> it kind of fits really well with my sort of interest area in sort of occupational transitions in which, you know, linking that with motivation, all stuff that I've talked about on the podcast in the, in the past, uh-huh. where... Something that's sort of acute, we know there's enough research. We know most injuries that a physio or a doctor can give you a fairly relatively bare any sort of adverse things, accurate time frame of how long it's going to take. Like I break my foot, the doctor can give me a fairly accurate sort of within one or two weeks timeline of uh, this is, you know, this is going to take six weeks, this is going to take eight weeks, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. And I think most people, when we're talking about sort of coping mechanisms and resilience and that sort of stuff, it has a time frame on it, which is something I don't think a lot of people think about. Like if I can tolerate something, that doesn't mean that I can tolerate it forever. I can tolerate – so if I do break my foot and I have to use crutches, like – that sucks. I'm going to have sore arms. I'm going to be tired. There's going to be some places that are harder for me to get into, like lots of stairs and that kind of stuff. It's going to be a pain in the ass going through the airport or getting on a plane, all of that kind of stuff. Like, I know that that's going to be difficult. But yeah. I know that I only have to put up with that for six weeks. And yeah. I have the skills and I have the resilience and I have the capacities, mental, physical, or otherwise, to do that. Now, if that was open-ended, like quite often it is with chronic pain, and it was like, you've broken your foot, it could be like that forever, we don't know. Like that open-endedness itself Mm -hmm. takes a toll on your your coping mechanism. So, yeah, it's still the same me. Say I have the coping mechanisms and the resilience and all of that to tolerate that discomfort Mm-hmm. But not knowing for how long I had to do it itself yeah. would or like it wouldn't be like I tolerate it for the six weeks, which is how much capacity I have, and then I stop. It's like I have no idea how long I have to tolerate this for or how long I, I, I can. So it puts a toll right from the very start. It's not like a, a bucket where you just start oh, sure. to empty it and when you run out of water, you run out of water. Like it's like, oh my God, I'm going to, yeah. I don't know how much water's in here. So I'm just not going to use it. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. I think that's something that we need to get our heads around as health, all health professions. Like we need to understand that just because someone, and it kind of made me think before when you're talking about like for, you know, a long period of time you had pain. And for most people listening, when you were like, oh, maybe a one or two, they were going, oh, that's not bad. But yeah. one or two with an open-ended, how long is this going to be is yeah. the issue. Not necessarily for this, we're looking at this one like 10 minute sliver of time and it's a one or two. Because most people, if you're like, oh, I just, you know, I kick my toe, like I stub my toe, 
pain. It might be a five. But I know it's only going to last 30 seconds. Yeah, exactly. I can tolerate that much pain for 30 seconds. I know it's going to end. If I did that and it didn't end, there was no end point and I didn't know... All, that's a whole different skill set. Like, yes, I could still have the tolerance to put up with it for the 30 seconds, et cetera, et cetera, like I was saying before, but it's a different skill set altogether. Being able to put those things in place, not knowing how long you're going to have to do it. And I think that's something that, like you were explaining, OTs could really be useful for and be really good at. In that people, and correct me if I'm wrong, people need to know that, yes, okay, it's open ended. But, you know, we've got this team, like you're working collaboratively. So like, like you're working collaboratively. It's a team effort. Like we're, we're all working towards this together. I think that in itself is one thing that can help because you're not alone for for one. But I've always, in a lot of the theories that I look at about motivation for people, um, they talk about it being, uh, giving the healthcare professional the ability to hold the hope for a person when they're not able to hold it themselves. And I think chronic yeah. pain is a really good example of that because of that open-endedness of it. Like yeah. if you had got an answer, I think, right at the start and said, even this is going to be here for six months, how yeah. you dealt with it and the skills you put in place would have been so different. So different. Even if it yeah. said two years, like a, a, a definite time period makes a difference on how you roll out those coping mechanisms because it's open-ended. I think an OT has the capability of saying like, listen, I know it's open-ended. I understand. You can hold the hope for you. Yeah. I also know that you're stronger than you believe you are or than you might feel at the moment. And I'm going to support you to get back to some of the things that are really meaningful, whether we modify them or you know show you a different way of doing them or change the environment so that you can get back into it. And I think doing that also then helps like, okay, yeah, I can tolerate this. And you can use those occupational engagements to start graded exposure and whatever else is required to, uh, like you were talking about, uh, what do you call it pain tolerance? Pain resilience? No. Resilience. Pain resilience. Pain resilience. Yeah. yeah. So to start sort of doing those sort of things, like through occupation, amazing. Who would have thought? I know, right? And it, and it is. It's, I completely agree with that because... The other thing, not only is it open-ended and you don't know when it's going to end or if it's going to end, the other thing that I find really difficult is, um, as I said, sort of my pain sits around a one or a two out of 10 at the moment. You know, I'm sort of at a place where I'm, I'm doing the best that I have been all year, but it was literally just last week, a day before I started my full-time placement, I woke up seven out of 10, the worst it's ever been. And it hit me like an absolute truck. And that devastation of having a period of time where things are really good and you feel like things are stabilizing, you know, you're getting on with your life, you feel more resilient, you're feeling more like you're coping better. And then one day you can just wake up and you feel like you're back at day one. So that's a real mental challenge for me because the the variance in it and the unpredictability of it is you literally have no idea and that's something that I had to really adjust to, like not letting those flare-ups in pain really get me down because, as I said, like I feel like I'm at a place now where I'm on top of things but there's times where things will really hit the fan and all week last week, I kid you not, every single day, it's my first week of full-time placement, 
my pain was like the worst it's ever been. And just knowing that I had this um, attendance requirement with uni, you know, you have to attend 90% of your full-time eight-week placement to pass, was like I couldn't just wake up and lie in bed and go, I'm not going to go. Like I had to get up and I had to go and I had to stick out the eight hours of placement in an unfamiliar environment with unfamiliar people. I didn't feel comfortable telling anyone what I was going through. But in saying that, before I started placement, you know, I took the initiative, I contacted my placement supervisor. I let them I let them know that I had a chronic pain condition. It's very variable. There could be times where I might not be able to make it in or I might have to leave early. Worst case scenario, I sort of gave them the heads up so that at least going there, if, you know, for some reason I had a flare-up in pain in the middle of the day, I didn't feel awkward about having to bring it up with my supervisor. She was already aware. So that took the pressure off me as well. Yeah, there's things that you can put in place to sort of cover your back and have a backup plan. I think that's really important for chronic pain because it can be so variable. I I sat down with my placement supervisor. I have a plan at uni where I can request extensions on, on assignments if I need. So I basically just got something from my doctor to say that I had an ongoing health condition and my uni is really good. Like they're very understanding and, you know, sometimes people don't even look into that kind of thing when they're going through something and they've got uni requirements and stuff like that. But having that backup plan and having that leniency has been really helpful for me. And I haven't been, I haven't actually had to use it this semester, which has been amazing, but it's there just yeah, in yeah. case. And, and that really helps from the mental side of things, like not putting that pressure on yourself to have to get something submitted by a certain date if your circumstances aren't ideal. So yeah, good. just to recap, like chronic pain is so variable and yeah, open-ended and that can take a huge toll. I feel like I'm constantly on edge. You, you just don't know what each day is going to bring. Every morning you wake up, the pain's the first thing you think about. Every night you go to sleep, you're like, what's tomorrow going to bring? Is it going to be a good day or a bad day? And that's something that people who don't have chronic pain, you think back to the time where you never had chronic pain and you'd wake up every day and you could just think about the day ahead and what you were going to do and you could plan things without having to think about pain. And it's it's something I look back on. I'm like, God, I took that so for granted. But you really don't realise like how much of a change it can be when something like this hits you out of the blue and all of a sudden you've got to look at your life in a completely different light because you've got this other consideration sort of sitting on your shoulder waiting to sort of jump at you or yeah as I said I've had three pain-free days essentially but tomorrow I could wake up and it could be 10 out of 10 pain yeah yep really just don't know so yeah as you were saying it's yeah (laughs) as you were saying it's that that extra consideration of that open-endedness yeah is, is really important. And I like I like that as a tip on terms of like almost like planning ahead, like a backup plan. Like, you know, you, yeah. ho- you hope you don't have to use it, but it's there just in case. And it's even if you'd never use it, the fact that it's there, it's almost like a little safety net. Like I know a lot of unis, especially in Australia, will have those sort of services. Even if it's not someone who's at uni, like having something in place with your workplace, this is something NOT could help you with, like in terms of, of course. You know, putting these plans in place. This is something I used to do quite often with my, my mental health clients. Yeah. Like just setting up a backup plan, even if it's, like I said, you, you hope you never have to use it, but just yeah. in case it's there and just having that safety net often 
can relieve a bit of stress and anxiety just knowing that it's there and you know like if I wake up tomorrow or I I'm struggling to get this assignment in like I have a safety net where you know I can ask for an extension and it's not going to be a big deal yeah like just having that in place can can help people yeah yeah the other thing I thought about is you know we have spare rooms and meeting rooms at placement like you know, sometimes for me, it's just a matter of either lying down or sitting down and just taking some deep breaths, you know, meditation and deep breathing has become something that I've really utilized and is sort of like a pain management skill that I've sort of built up. So yeah, for me, it's like, it would literally just be, give me half an hour, I'm going to go and sit in this room and gather my thoughts, try and get get this under control. And then sometimes like, half an hour later I'm my pain's gone and I can continue on with the day so yeah just taking those considerations um can really be helpful and sort of allow you to get on with your day-to-day activities knowing that you've got that backup plan in place yeah that's awesome you mentioned before about resources are there what sort of resources are there that you you are aware of or that you found that some people might be interested in having a look at yeah I guess the first one um that I sort of stumbled across from a just an understanding pain perspective. There's a website called retrainpain.com. So there's a few little slideshows on there and educational resources that sort of go through understanding pain, um, sleep, and sort of its link with pain, understanding medication, and then sort of navigating pain in relationships and in social situations. So that could be useful not only for people in chronic pain, but also as an OT, a good resource just to sort of, I'm not sure how much training everyone else goes through um, in university when studying OT, but we haven't touched a lot on sort of pain signs. I think for I think for OT, it's still quite an emerging area. So I, I would be surprised if there's many courses in, in Australia, I can't really speak for overseas, that would have it as a like a, a lot of content cool, yet. Yeah. But I think it will it will happen. Yeah, for sure. So that could also be helpful for OTs or any other sort of health practitioners listening. The other one, if you want to sort of delve down the track of the mind-body connection that I was talking about, I'll just plug a few books that I read that I found really helpful. So the theory sort of came from Dr. John Sarno. And he has a number of books out there. His most recent one was The Divided Mind. I found that really helpful. Dr. Howard Schubiner, he has a book called Unlearn Your Pain, which sort of gives you some practical tools to implement to try and sort of, I guess, from a um, neuroplasticity point of view, like retrain your brain to think differently about pain and potentially unlearn those neural pathways. I'm reading that at the moment, so I will update you on how that goes but so far it's really good that's a more practical book whereas john john sarno is more the theory behind behind it and then um the last one nicole satch s-a-c-h-s she has a book called the meaning of truth which talks about the mind-body connection and then she's a psychologist so she um, works with people in chronic pain and she talks about the journaling side of things and I guess yeah some more practical tools on working through sort of your emotions to help yeah she's helped a lot of people cure their chronic pain through that through that process so that's the book on that and 
if anyone's interested in powerlifting and sort of like the gym side of things, I listened to a podcast by Eddie Lindenstein called the Mind and Fitness Podcast. And he talks about the mind-body connection. He actually had a chronic pain story himself that he is now cured from chronic pain through doing that work. But he has a podcast that sort of links chronic pain, the mind-body connection, and sort of the fitness athlete side of things, which I actually listen to probably on a daily basis is really helpful and is actually what gave me sort of the motivation to get back into the gym and, and get back to where I was prior. So there's some, yeah, really good resources. I'll get Brock to put my name and contact details um, in the description if anyone wants to email me any questions or, yeah, request any more information regarding resources. But yeah, that's other awesome. than that, yeah, that is. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention my friend Bronnie Thompson from New Zealand, oh, yes. uh, who has is an OT, has worked, uh, also I think she's a qualified psychotherapist. Don't shoot me, mm-hmm. Bronnie, if I've got that wrong. But her website, healthskills.wordpress.com, I'll throw that link in as well, has a just a ton of resources. It's been around for ages. It's got sections for occupational therapists only, for people who have chronic pain, yeah, coping skills. There's tons of resources in there about coping skills and, yeah, it's just a wealth of knowledge if you're if you're in for some some light reading. So I'll yeah. uh, throw Bronnie's I'll have to check that one out link. myself. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, she's really good. She's amazing. <laughs> Cheeky fuck. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much, dude. That was really awesome. Like, you know, thanks for sharing. I mean, like I said to you at the at the very start when I first asked you, like. I really want to, and I've done it with a few different people now, sort of get, uh, I guess, a lived experience of you know, a condition or a diagnosis or something, because I think that therapists can really benefit from that, because you mentioned mm. it earlier in the podcast, like, we can't just get people to go out and get some chronic pain so they know what it feels like. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, And it's important that we're able to, on terms of like being able to empathize with people and really kind of get a better understanding of how to work with people and what to do, Like, it's important that we hear these stories and, and are able to take something away from them. So I've done it with a number of people and i'm I'm so grateful that you were willing to to come and have a chat and and tell us about you know your your chronic pain experience good bad positive negative and the journey that you've been on so far yeah no i'm i'm really really happy to have the opportunity to come on here and and yeah share my experience and hopefully help one or two people or even just from an o t perspective understanding better what what people go through behind the scenes of chronic pain so yeah hopefully it was helpful yeah no that's awesome thank you so much no problems at all thanks for having me 